Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. Today's podcast is hosted by GLD Director Ellen Lust and features Mine Edda, Professor of Political Science at Bogachi University in Istanbul. She is the co-author of the book The Political Economy of Regional Cooperation in the Middle East and is also a member of the recently formed GLD Steering Committee. Today's discussion was recorded on location in Istanbul and discusses how migration in the country, specifically the influx of around 3.7 million Syrian refugees, has affected the country's social and political landscape. Ideas about how the country is trying and often failing to integrate these new residents are also addressed. You can find more information about Minnie and her research in the description below. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm in Istanbul at the moment, and I'm very, very pleased to be with a, a dear friend, but also an expert on uh, local politics and thinking particularly in this case about how refugees have been incorporated or how they changed the shape of different neighborhoods along the city and across the city. Um, so first, uh, Mina, welcome. I'd like you to introduce yourself just a bit. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I am a professor in Boazic University um, at, at the Department of Political Science and International Relations. Um, and I've, uh, even though I don't work on urban transformation in Istanbul um, initially, I started working on this different neighborhoods of Istanbul um, probably over 10 years now. And um, and not only have these neighborhoods changed their social fabric, but the, the whole migratory flows have been quite fascinating as well. Um, and this is way before actually the Syrian refugee um, influx starting in 2011 and on. Uh, so before then, so let me actually just give you a sort of a broad overview of what really happened. Um, um, I try to study the sort of the entire processes of um, urban transformation, political economy of inter- urban transformation, on the sort of the basis of neighborhoods, but also how they how they change, as I said, the social fabric, the encounters, the nature of encounters, the newcomers, oldcomers, and sort of how different um, claims over space uh, in these particular neighborhoods are being made, and how they have the disputes over different uh, space making place-making, so to speak, is actually um, resolved. So uh, my initial idea, well, I started out with this, okay, let's, you know, let's give an account of these um, neighborhoods in terms of how much they're changing, because, um, you know, I think Turkey is second to China in terms of the speed of urban transformation and how fast these um, uh, cities are changing. Um, so, and, and it's been remarkable indeed to, to, to witness that, and we can talk about why this is so speeded up and over the last 15 years or so, if you like, but but in, at the same time, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, Turkey all of a sudden started receiving. It, it was Turkey had always been a sending country in terms of immigrants. Uh, you know, sort of uh, as well known that there are two and a half million Turks uh, living across uh, Europe. Uh, so Turkey was always depicted as a country that is sending. Uh, migrants and, and and refugees, mostly Kurdish refugees, to to Europe, and all of a sudden, the starting of the 1990s, you now are faced with this um, with this phenomena of of Turkey now receiving different kinds of um, of, uh, of um, you know sort of migrants, mostly economic migrants, but mostly from the post-Soviet world, but also um, in the in the in the Gulf War, in the sort of the involvement in Iraqis, Turkmens, and different kinds of you know, sort of um, migratory flows in the south is also uh, becoming very interesting in the 1990s. So you had you had a very you know sort of um, 
uh, you know, this cliche about Turkey, it's, it, you know, changed from immigrant sending to an immigrant receiving country uh, over the last, um, you know, sort of 20, 25 years. And of course, the Syrian war and then the, sort of the influx of 3.8, I think that's the final number now, uh, half a million of which is, is in Istanbul, uh, has changed dramatically the entire, uh, entire picture. So that was the sort of, of course, you know, sort of me living in Istanbul over the last 20 years and having to kind of uh, really trying to make sense out of what is really happening as really what moved me into this into this field where I can sort of simultaneously look at how the political economy of these neighborhoods and the city is changing but also how these sort of these social um, social institutions norms you know difficulties of living together are changing at the same time so that's the sort of the broader uh, research agenda but then I'd be happy to give you different neighborhoods projections <laughs> if you want. Actually, let's start with different time periods because okay. you're right and you're reminding me your earlier work especially mm -hmm. was looking really at sort of post-Soviet mm -hmm. um, migrants and you right. mentioned economic migrants. I think you call them carpet. Um, I want to say carpet baggers. <laughs> I know that's not quite right. No, shuttle traders right. or, or the, or, or the um, suitcase traders. Okay. That was the other. Yeah, um, yeah the, 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 actually the initial work was on a, on a neighborhood called Lalili. Uh, which was a sort of a transnational trade uh, place where um, post-Soviet women, predominantly women, that's a sort of, there's a whole gender side of this, uh, they were coming in and they were actually sort of circular migrants, they weren't really coming and staying, but some were coming and staying, you know, sort of finding jobs in entertainment industry, in prostitution, uh, but mostly as, as um, domestic migrant workers. Um, so working in houses and cleaners and so, so that was the sort of the very female, uh, very post-Soviet first inflow that sort of started changing the urban landscape, but also sort of, as I said, this Lalili place was a very interesting cluster um, with hotels, you know, that were sort of catering purely to Russian um, oh. female, um, you know, sort of uh, traders that were coming in. And, and this is obviously the immediate, in the early years of the the, the, the Russian uh, opening, if you will. And, um, you know, sort of Moldavians who spoke during oral Turkish, where the were, were the, one of the biggest wave Bulgarians, Bulgaria at the time, of course, was not part of the European Union. But this was sort of Turkey became a very fashionable, very desirable destination because it didn't have visas. It was very easy to come in, uh, and and it was you know you could then some of the goods were very interesting. So they were basically coming in, buying goods in box and and oh, trading and, and, and trading back. Okay. That's why it was called suit suitcase trade. But it was a shuttle trading needs, and there were some. Turkish businesses that also set up shops in at the time, uh, but the ruble crisis, 1998, ruble crisis mm -hmm. had to, had to sort of whole, um, you know, created a lot of disasters. So there was a collapse of this whole trade at the at this height in the 1990s. It was estimated to be like 10 billion dollars, and but it was wow. it, but it a year a year, okay. and and um, and so then now it, then after the crisis, it sort of came down. It was became and it's and it's you know and this is all informal. Um, it, you know, sort of, it was registered. Some of it was registered. Some of it was not. Some of it was a bulk trade. And so, what was so fascinating at the time was that it created its own industry. So they had cargo companies. They had hotel clusters. Right. They were they were all these shops now. They were producing for only for the for the international sort of. Post so the the fashion was Russian. Uh, you know, sort of the <laughs> outlooks were Russian. The traders were Russian. And the, and the shopkeepers, the encounters with the shopkeepers and this uh, and this woman were. Were fascinating. That was what really got me first because they were like, um, you know, there's sort of really very Kurdish looking man with married top one, you know, Russian woman, and then like 
really blonde kids still right. strolling around. So sort of changed the demographic <laughs> Exactly. No, it was, and, and so it was, and, and it wasn't, but it was very volatile. And that's the thing that's over time when you, so I revisited these, this neighborhood okay. uh, probably 10 years later. Um, and it turned out that this is, you know, sort of because they had lost some of the Russian touch, uh, they have diversified. So now there's a whole uh, bunch of streets of traders that, that too is clustered actually that to cater to Middle East. Okay, okay. Iran, Iraq, and then there's a whole African component that catering to, um, you know, sort of the only the, I mean, you know, that, that corresponds but somewhat with the migratory flows as well because uh, African migratory flows into Turkey also increased, mostly uh, Somalians, Ghana, you know, sort of, they come in with the aspiration of becoming football players. Okay, uh, interesting. <laughs> so, but they end up in being integrated into the informal market. By the way, the reason why Istanbul is so interesting for, for migrants, even though um, um, you know, a, um, a refugee, for example, an Afghan refugee, might be re- registered in a place um, called Afyon, right? Okay. But they're, technically they're not allowed to work there or somewhere else, but they do find informal work in Istanbul. So okay. they all, so they might be in economic pull. It, there is an incredible economic pull. So you might be registered in different parts and as a part of the UN uh, ICR. By the way, just the, as of, I know I'm jumping from one place to another, but um, um, the refugees are not recognized as refugees in Turkey. The Syrian um, refugees? Or and the, none of the refugees, none of them. because okay. they're not coming from, unless you're coming from Europe, um, the Turkey does not recognize any of these refugees coming as former refugees, and that's a ridiculous um, 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 sort of comment, I know. But it, uh, it's a sort of uh, it, Turkey is one of the very few countries that have kept what we call the geographical limitation okay. uh, on the definition of refugees, which means that you know, you, in the Second World War, you fled the Second World War, and now <laughs> and you come from Europe. If you're not coming from Europe, we're not recognizing it. So the Syrians. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they are not sort of registered. So the UNHCR does do register them, uh-huh. but it's not. And then they do have, you know, sort of some cards, but they are technically not recognized as refugees by the government. Um, what separates the Syrian refugees coming in now is that uh, in 2014, three years after the war, Turkish government had provided them with, a, with even a more unique status called the temporary protection status, which allows them again to give them certain particular right bundles, but again, it's not internationally recognized. Uh, you know, it's, not, it's something that, has, um, that, had, that the Turkish government has created, which essentially has sort of increased the precarity and unfortunately the portability of these people as well. So, um, and that's a big concern now that, that has sort of emerged, in the, especially in the last two years or so. Um, but, you know, sort of in effect creating some degree of protection uh, to the Syrian refugee population in ways that wasn't available before, so that was the good side of it. But then, of course, making sure that they are temporary guests and sort of hence the temporary a notion of pushing them back, a notion yeah. that they will somehow uh, go back. So, uh, can I stop you for one second? Sorry, so I want to make sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's very yeah. useful, but I'm, I just want to step back for a second to the to the you know, the shuttle traders and the right. post Soviets. So did they have any types of support? I mean, was there any way in which they were seen as refugees or were they just seen as economic traders and migrants and people were coming in? Um, well, they had a very, as, as is any migrant population, they had a very mixed bag. So there were some, uh, a significant portion uh, were these traders, what they called okay. circular migrants, mm-hmm. um, that were coming in some state over time and became... Uh, became sort of domestic migrant workers, but they were also predominantly informal. So okay. they didn't actually have 
uh, resident permits or work permits. Um, and, and so everything was done in a sort of a... But the, the policy, I have called that a deliberate negligence. In other words, everybody was happy, everybody had cheap access to uh, domestic labor, uh, because you know Turkey is known for not providing preschool, pre-primary school. Um, you know I think it's seven percent or something in Turkey. They you know there are not enough institutionalized mechanisms for preschool kids. Okay. So you either have to rely on your family, which is very common, but and becoming increasingly state say, right promoted. Right. Exactly. That you just you know let the let the family take care of it, or let women stay at home and take mm-hmm. care of it, uh, or you just have to. Um, bring in, you know, and, and for an urban working woman, that's the only, that's mostly the only option that, that if the family is not living in the city. So there was a rising demand okay. uh, for that as well, but that sort of was matched with the availability of this cheap labor coming in um, that could, you know, that could speak the language, that were also very comparatively, quote unquote, docile and, you know, sort of, uh, so that was an easy commodification path. And, so uh, sort of relieved the state from any kinds of pressures for these exactly. things as long as they let these people exactly. come in. Work in precisely, and on the invisible. Actually, it was a. Um, I'm jumping from things to things, but the, the you know sort of it also left these domestic migrant workers in a very precarious yes. position because they had no really, uh, you know, legal recourse, and they could be deported immediately. Yeah. They could they be were, abused they were, as well, and they yes. couldn't. Do and that they were there, yeah. ter- you know tremendous stories of, of violence and even death and a lot of abuse. But then over time, government also ah then into there was also concern that. Um, that these women were getting married and, and were getting to, to fast-track uh, citizenship. So in 2003, they actually changed the citizenship laws to make this difficult for women to actually marry. And then um, become citizens. And then become citizens. So okay. the citizenship laws actually sort of it required you to have actually resided in the country for five years. These things, it was much easier. So the, one of the things, well, funny stories from the field, um, is that, you know, sort of that, so the police would go into a, a busting a prostitution ring, for example, and then they will... You know, so prostitution is legal okay. in Turkey. So if you're a Turkish citizen doing prostitution, they can't charge you. But if you are a foreign citizen doing prostitution, they can get you immediately deported. So of course, these Russian women were now flashing to Turkish ID cards because they had just gotten married, made, made uh, arranged marriages with their Turkish counterparts. Then if you must have infuriated the police that have led to the change of the, that's my interpretation of it. But that, you know, so that was a major change, the citizenship laws changing that also, so that meant that the police could actually visit you in houses, making sure that the marriage is real, okay. almost like the green cards or other controlled. Right. Yeah. Um, which, going back, is also is a sort of a commentary on, on this whole mythology that somehow Syrians are becoming citizens. Citizen getting citizenship has not never has never been that easy in this country, and the number of citizens is not. I think that was the last time I checked was either I can't remember now. It's fifty thousand or so. Okay. Which is not okay. not that many. Not that many. Yeah. In fifty thousand out of out of, of three point eight million. Right, so it's nothing in a yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so having said that, so the, the so there were uh, and the, and there were in all fairness there were over the years there were some uh, efforts to regularize this. Um, so they actually allowed the the, um, the domestic care to be um, you know to included in the sort of the possible work permits because okay. it was not listed as a sort of a um, a job that could for which you could get a resident permit. So people actually now. Um, they're formalized. They're, they're formalized, relatively formalized. They still, I think, they don't get that much of a work permit because for work permit you have to pay the minimum uh, security that increases the cost, which sort of beats the purpose for hiring these care. Uh, but then, you know, residency permits 
uh, are, are quite common, which allows then these women to travel back and forth much more easily because then you, can, you have paid your fees and you can actually reside. Um, but having said that, the numbers have also dwindled quite a bit because the Bulgarians are no longer coming. Bulgaria belong to you know, Romanians. Bulgarians are much more in an advantageous position than Turkey right now. Right. So they are not interested in coming. But now the Uzbeks, Kyrgyz, uh, Turkmen's, the sort of the uh, so those are the new um, sort of uh, um, Georgians. Um, but still, interestingly, like the the visas visa system have actually remained. Um, uh, loose. Now, one of the that's a fascinating part of this actually. It's in the Turkish visa regime um, is is quite um, soft, quote unquote, in comparison to other countries, the fortress Europe concept, um, and for various reasons, right? Turkey always had this kind of sort of Turkic diaspora right. uh, interest in the post-Soviet Union. Uh, you know, we are the only country that has no visa for Iran, for example, over the last. 30 years, which is quite interesting as well. You know, so the Iran is coming back. I've never had that. And then, so of course, right before the war, Turkey had actually lifted visa for Syrians. Okay. Uh, so that was a sort of this whole idea that the sort of the, the Turkey as a regional power had landed itself into this kind of a soft visa regime, which also explains why that was a very attractive, easy place to come. Attractive attra um, you know, destination for a lot of those people, which is in for, for a country that is sort of trying to have that kind of a soft power was a brilliant strategy, as far as I can say. But it sort of ended up with its own complexities, obviously, especially with the Syrian, yeah. uh, Syrian context. Still Sorry. not letting you come to Syria. Okay. Yeah, I want okay. to actually <laughs> one, one more question about the about the sort of the neighborhood, the Laali neighborhood that you've talked about, because it's interesting to me that it has you know both that it has changed over time, but also the fact that it seems to be a place where people are going, right? Yeah. Whether it's Africans or Russians, right? Or, so what explains that? What's the what's the pull factor for that particular neighborhood? Now that we're you know, sort of moving from Turkey to thinking about areas in which they they go, how do I mean, we understand it, it, that? It's very interesting. It's a chicken or the egg problem uh, in some ways because it's in in and, and it's it's fascinating in the way that that's the sort of how these clusters and different kinds of clusters for every every neighborhood that I've gone as which is known as my neighborhood, every muhtar the the local governors would always tell stories about how this neighborhood has always been so welcoming <laughs> well some not welcome i wouldn't say they are not that delusional but <laughs> but that that has been a migrant destination that the, okay. that that the poor have always come in because the rents were slow i mean these are remember these are usually the outskirts used to be the outskirts of the city and so and 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 then the real estate prices were not as high, I and mean, that's the, one of the radical, you know, sort of transformation in the city. Right, every single plot of land became incredibly uh, commodified and very valuable. So, sort of what was a sort of an, an ignored little neighborhood like Kumkapu was a fascinating place and case study. Right by the water, um, it's far up there. It's not technically it's not all that close to the city, but it's you know it used to be a rundown. You know, has a very Slow pace, okay. sort of has a little um, train that you know came into the uh, neighborhood and has these restaurants and sort of and and but the rents, I mean the rents, I would argue the, the sort of the rent prices, the real estate prices of the of that particular location is going to be the primary determinant of who who can come in there, and so every single migrant story, for example, they say even in the Kupkapi case, first the first the sort of the, the migrants came in and when when it became more expensive to live here, they started moving on to the, you know, further outskirts, yeah. right? So, so 
that, um, so to me, it's, it's a location geography. I mean, I'm making a very geographically determined argument, but, but that's one of the things. But in the case of Ladeli, for example, it almost creates its own sort of a creeping. So it's the, it's the sort of the informal, it's first the Kurdish migrants. So okay. the first Kurdish migrants that were displaced in the 1990s because of the, south, the war in the southeast come in, they want, they want different mechanisms of getting into the informal mm -hmm. uh, informal labor. I and mean, what more informal could this possibly get where you could do dollar business, right? export stuff, and then make a deal with sort of small textile businesses. I mean, even I had introduced like some auto parts, um, uh, you know, auto, just literally auto parts person who's done auto parts dealing all his life. And, and he is in love with the Russians. I mean, it's like the way he narrates this, that particular period when the Russians were coming. It's like that, that you know they were so civilized. I could even go with the go to um, you know sort of vacation with them. Right. Like, so, so they have. We, I was you know sort of I was becoming a bourgeois. I mean the, there was literally a sort of a, an output class mobility that came in with that, which essentially explains the sprawl. So it starts out with very little uh, shops, but the shops also shifting strategies. Right. One of the fascinating aspects of this is at the moment a new type of migrants or a new type of like the Arab tourists coming in right now in this particular part of um, Bail the neighborhood right now, it's, it's sort of it's creating an incredible impetus for shifting strategies on the local local shops. Uh, they change the way they you know, the stuff that they sell. They change what they're in for the the, the 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 food that they sell. And I've been amazed with the kind of flexibility and the sort of the adaptability of this. But it also explains why you know, sort of why people want to clutter around particular places where there are these kind of sort of shopkeepers, traditional right. and adaptability and just relatively being open to the foreigners coming in all the time. So these are like what I call gateway neighborhoods. Like they come in, they get the first grunt of the, 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 the adaptation and some stay, some, some, you know, sort of, but we know, for example, that the, that Kumkapa is a, is a place for mostly African um, and Russian. It used okay. to be more Russian. Um, so there are sort of clusters that we know where to find these people in, in some ways, although they're now in sort of all scattered, especially the Syrians are scattered across. Uh, there are certain neighborhoods where, you know, where they're 98% Arabic and, and certain Syrian uh, as well. But again, the fact that it is scattered uh, tells you something about the, um, both the sort of the challenge, but also the, the beauty of the encounter, as I call it, because it forces you to... Um, to be different or to be exposed to it, which is my version of defining cosmopolitanism. Right. <laughs> it pushes the city to be more cosmopolitan than it otherwise would have been. When I think about the current Syrian refugees right. who've come in since 2014 or a little bit before, can you give me some examples or some comparisons to how they've, they've negotiated those encounters uh, in, say, different, different neighborhoods? Um, hmm, that's a very good question. Um, I haven't really specifically thought about it, but like in, in, in particular parts of the of the city, they're invisible. Okay. Um, like Is that because they're just not welcome, or it's they're too not expensive, welcome. or it's too it's both. Okay. They're both, you know, they're just way too expensive, or maybe way too homogeneous. Okay. Uh, because unfortunately, there are those kind of. To me, that's not. That's like a. To me, it's a village. It's not a city. You, those neighborhoods should not be part of a cosmopolitan city. But there are, <laughs> there are places that are extremely homogeneous and are not welcoming, and they, and have frankly treated the Syrians as if they're like only beggars and they're just sort of in the streets and the poor. We don't want to see them. And and in some ways, in some of these municipalities, they've actually been picked up on the streets and, and, and taken and, out. And taken out. Uh, especially in two thousand fifteen, 
um, the summer of 2015 when there was this major migration crisis and inflow to, to Europe where people were getting on these boats, mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, sort of kids dying on the shores yeah. of Istanbul and, you know, all across the Aegean coast. Um, the, that summer was really when, when you began to see the sort of the growing, what I would call securitization of the issue. Uh, because on the one hand, the Turkish government basically said, hey, if you want to go, go, literally. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, create this crisis for Europe, where the Europe would then have to come back right. and make a deal with Turkey in return for Turkey putting the lid on the kind of inflow. Because there was a huge boat industry that emerged. Again, you know, that's the dark side of that flexibility, right? You know, sort mm -hmm. of all of a sudden there were people who were like, okay, we'll put them in the boats and create these weird life jackets that didn't work and so and push these people yeah, onto, the country, yeah. onto these um, islands, the Greek the Greek islands being the mm -hmm. first frontier. So so un until that period there was actually sort of a um, you know RKP obviously I should underline that RKP has always been very uh, at least on a discursive level very welcoming and we have to do this. This is partly this the Muslim Brotherhood thing but also anti Assad sentiment, we have to finance the the freedom fighters, etc. So there has been a sort of political support for this. And in frankly, RKP constituency too, at the beginning, was various, like these are our Muslim friends, faith associations were at work, so there was, and then sort of the Kurds with the Kurdish Syrians, so they had their own sort of ethnic and religious lineages that allowed them to integrate into the city in much better terms than they otherwise would have. The RKP being the, the ruling Islamist the party. Exactly, is sorry. <laughs> yes, so that's the... So, so RKP's discourse, at least the main party, the governing party's uh, discursive sort of um, and political um, sort of um, campaign on this is our responsibility, we have, we cannot leave them alone. So in, in all fairness, I mean, I, we have to acknowledge that this was a sort of a very humanitarian response. And, and I, you know, I wish, and it, I, I mean, and, and having 3.8 millions refugees over a period of eight years, nine years now, is it is, is is it is something that I don't think any other country would have, you know, sort of um, done or I mean so so that having said that though what has actually happened on the ground is 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 quite dramatic in a sense that there are these people who and ended up in you know, risking their lives and dying and, and and some of them really led you know fled to Europe, the others basically got scattered into the urban landscape. So there was this you know the first clutter obviously was on the camps so mm -hmm. the so from the camps now 80 85 percent of all the Syrian refugees are on urban landscape so there are very few left 100 150,000 on the camps but what's happening on the la ur urban landscape obviously is the question right there informal labor markets children 50 percent of this is children and and, and you know sort of children and women uh, but it's especially in the early years we actually did lose a generation of uh, of Syrian kids that come in uh, with some Arabic and maybe six, seven years old, that generation who's now 14, 15, 16 is actually quite lost because they were like um, in Arabic courses or some parallel educational uh, strategies with the faith associations and all of that, faith-based associations, but there were really no way of incorporating them into the sort of formal Turkish education system. Now there is. Now okay. with the sort of the, with the temporary protection and all of that, but you know, not that there are not problems. Lots of you know, sort of bullying, integration problems that are happening on the ground. At least they're in school. But at least they're in school. But even you know, but the percentage of the, the ones in school are actually like 50, 55 percent. So okay. there's still, who are these children? Where are they? They're mostly in the within the family, working in these informal labor markets. 
textile until so there are like a, a neighborhood that I'm working on in Zaytunbuna now. Textile until is underground, I think 14, 13, 14 year old Syrian kids that are working under horrible conditions and you know sort of and that's part of the landscape right? because that's what they need to do for keeping the sort of the family unit alive. Yeah. Uh, and there has been tons of documentations, you know, videos and, and we know that's 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 a fact and child labor is a major problem. Seasonal workers again in Adana Mm -hmm. uh, whole, there are all families that are like working on, you know, fully underage uh, kids that are supposed to be in school. So there are really sort of, that's the sort of the violent economic aspects of the so-called Syrian adaptation, despite all the sort of the political discourse. Now, having said that, there are also some sort of social assistance packages uh, that have been set up with the European Union that is now working with the Turkish Crescent association that's being delivered so but it's it's either through the sort form of social assistance dealing with the poverty package or leaving them into the violence of the informal market so there are really no very few um, established norms and rules for formal apart from giving them okay we're giving you temporary cards so now you can get access right um, you know but you go to the hospital nobody speaks Arabic so they try to bring some Syrian um, doctors, uh, the, the Ministry of Health actually had that kind of sort of initiative, which was fine. But there were so many problems on the ground in terms of this. And then, there, of course, that fueled a sort of resentment that, that, that the Syrians are getting the health care and we're not. They're, they're not paying premium, we're paying premium. Right. So that's that angle. But then, of course, in education and healthcare, there are so many needs beyond education and healthcare that needs to be addressed. Where are these people going to work? Where are they going to be housed? Right? I mean, so the housing market has been incurring so there are like coalitions in apartments we're not going to be allowing anybody to rent to the Syrians because there's a, there's a whole living together thing which keeps on popping up even though as I said you know, sort of these are places that have where there has been enormous amounts of poverty right. uh, in a place like Topane for example the, which is also a very interesting case of this different encounters of waves of um, migrants so this is this used to be a very um, non-Muslim community kind of place in the early um, years of the Republic, but then, you know, sort of uh, boom in, in the 1950s, there's a sort of this um, um, 6th and 7th September incidents where you know, literally local residents go in and kick these um, non-Muslims out. Um, so, they're, you know, them leaving the city, then of course the migrants coming in and literally confiscating those houses and apartments. Uh, you know, sort of Kurdish migrants and Turkish migrants, and there was a basic. So the, that's the first layer of displacement. Now, the, some of these are from, you know, sort of from the southeast, and some of us are uh, are very poor and, mm -hmm. and very devout. And then the newcomers now are the I'm gallery sure. owners and sort of the artists. And so this is because this is a very bohemian central part of the city. So. And then there is also the the Romanis, the, and then the Syrians, and the sort of the, they're all a sort of. To me, it's an incredible laboratory of people, right? But there is an incredible problem of living together, and and then sort of um, even there, the sort of the, the, the they clutter on, on particular streets, and then they don't necessarily they don't really integrate. Mingle. The, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's why I, I'd like to call that more about an encounter, yeah. rather than full integration, because. Um, Full integration does require that you actually do something together or just sort of have an understanding. I have interviewed shop owners who have actually have five years of, of, a, of, a, of a cafe owner across the street, Syrian cafe owner, and they haven't said hello. 
they've never said once hello. I mean, that's I, they're sharing the same street. So I, so I'm sort of I've grown very skeptical over the contact theory stuff on <laughs> migrant cooperation. But but I think but there is something to be said about the encounter. The, yeah. the, I think that the encounter is valuable in a sense, and that even that contestation, like this whole what I call the you know sort of constant complaint mm-hmm. uh, about each other, and then sort of. Uh, through different third parties, perhaps not with each other, but then you sort of that, that you're constantly like making the claim, oh, this was, this was my right and this was your right. So long as that continues, that's like my minimalist, recognition. <laughs> right. Yeah. Then my minimalist minimalist conceptualization of living together now is like, <laughs> yes, you you have some sort of an encounter. You have to be exposed. You have to because you see that cognitive dissonance all all the time. I have a Syrian friend. Um. I, I, that's separate, but I don't like the series, yeah. right? So, yeah. I, or else, like I have donated, like I, in principle, I'm a devout Muslim and I've donated this much money to the Syrian cause, but I'm not going to allow them to get them to my shop, right? There is a, this constant sort of the, the cognitive dissonance, but I think that that can sort of mediate itself through this continuous reclaiming. I, that's why I like the concept of placemaking. You, so long as these people actually, like in the park, you know, they're making, they're very loud in the park. They or, yeah. or, or it's like or, or or the guy the guys are looking to our girls right, right? there's a right. whole these sort of gender norms kicking in uh, or there's just a notion threat. of threat and a notion yeah. of threat and that that's the sort of that we know that from the literature we expect all of that it's it's just that I'm beginning you know looking at these neighborhoods where there is really genuine mixing um, for whatever it's for political economy reasons uh, for you know sort of the fact that they have been sort of chain migration into this mm-hmm. in different parts. Um, throughout the, the, the sort of post-second world war, if you will, for whatever reason, the fact that this is a gateway, what I call the gateway, the moment you have a gateway uh, neighborhood uh, where people are having to mingle or having to have certain businesses or, or navigate themselves in, in that kind of a landscape where they are constantly placemaking and trying to capture the place, we're okay. That's my, that's my newest concept of politics. No, well, politics through placemaking. Yeah. Because I mean, it makes sense on two, two levels. I mean, one is, you know, the sort of, um, if you look at the history of the U.S., for example, right, and you're looking at waves of, of migrant, migrants or, or, you know, economic migrants in the most of the case, right, but the, the Irish come in and it's, ah, the Irish, and then, you right. know, so, so it, you know, but then later on, you know, Africans come in and then the Irish look much better than they did before. So it's, it's this notion right. that the older, the older ones are okay because we've had these encounters, we've gotten right. to know them, right? It's the new ones who are always kind of the threat and the ones who oh, are goodness. the unknown. I mean, some of the, some of these neighborhoods that I revisited in Lalili, for example, they were like, oh, it's all about the Syrians. The, these, yeah, but, these but the Russians, were, they were the Russians awesome. were like yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And, so and you wonder if you, you know, <laughs> ten years ago were the Russians all no, awesome, they were all right? Natasha's. They yeah. were like they were demoralized. You know, sort of they're all prostitutes. Yeah, they exactly. were all, yeah, exactly. They, that was a sort of a synonym for prostitution. They were yeah. like they were they were really sort of undermining our norms and yeah. family values, so yeah. to speak. That was the discourse back then. Yes. And now they were like, oh my God, that was the best thing that ever happened to us. So there's a, there's a whole glorification. The funny thing is even in those neighborhoods where they have actually literally confiscated the property of these non-Muslims, they all complain, oh, we were like, had these Greek neighbors and right. the Christians were here, we were all happy. You guys have actually like haven't paid rent on that property for the last 30 years. It's, it's, it's remarkable how the sort of the, the, and there is a wonderful literature on this of the sort of recreation, the random memory, exactly. um, and then how it's sort of the nostalgia literature that sort of somehow you have a very selective 
story. You don't remember how how you thought about it before, yeah. Yeah. or yeah. how after thirty years. I mean, this is the this is what fascinates me that a neighbor, the concept of neighborliness and being a neighbor. Yeah. That that your neighbor after thirty years, you go, all of a sudden it's like is no longer your neighbor. And you're, I mean, this is something that was that I was fascinated in Sarajevo, for example. That a lot of people said, you know, we've been neighbor with these people, and all of a sudden they were this, they were coming with the army. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, how do you get there, and why do you get there? When you, what does what does na- being neighbor really mean in right. these communities is, is fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, but they are very different. So there are like economic ones, and then there are also the residential ones that are quite interesting, um, where you do have these kind of sort of, you know, my child is not going to be playing. But that those kind of tensions, neighborhoods, the residential neighborhoods have that. The economic ones, you know, who's going to get what kind of informal right. job. Who goes They're, to what shops. Right. Who, uh, some rivalries even between Afghanis and Syrians, because you know, sort of the Afghanis having been there, single man versus the family unit migration, mm-hmm. very separate. So that you have, you have very different clustering, uh, and but also very space space based too, because depending on the space that that they're occupying, you have very different, um, very different um, difficulties or disputes <laughs> or conflicts, and I think mapping those. Different disputes and depending on the political economy of that neighborhood is, is, a, is would be very yeah. would be very interesting. Yeah. And actually, in some ways, we're going to be working on this. Yes. I should mention <laughs> that, that we're beginning a project yeah. with with uh, basically colleagues in, in Sweden that's looking at these issues with regards to uh, communities in Turkey and in Jordan and in Sweden as well. So, so thank you both for collaborating on that, but also for joining today. This has been thank fascinating. you. That's be that's be fun. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.